you're a young, nervous civilization about to send out its first deep space probe, you want to make sure whoever finds it is going to want to be your friend. And the best way to do that is to send a mixtape. Earth's Mixtape is the podcast where we dive into the contents of the Voyager Golden Record. One song at a time, one picture at a time, one whale song at a time. Welcome back to Earth's Mixtape. This is the podcast where we review the contents of the Voyager Golden Record. I'm Mike Dunlavey, and with me as always is... Roby Austin. And... Hannah Ayler. This episode, we'll be talking about musical selections from Peru and the USA, as well as photos relating to our planet's geology from the Golden Record Photo Archive. Let's begin. today by talking about track 13. Track 13 is titled Pan Pipes and Drum Song from Peru. It runs 52 seconds and it was collected by Casa de la Cultura from Lima. I like to believe that the Peruvians had a different name for it. The name is very descriptive but it it doesn't really tell you what the song is and I spent some time looking around. I couldn't find any information of what the title would actually be nor who were the artists or the people playing, nor who recorded it beyond the fact that it was collected by this organization called Casa de la Cultura, which I think was a Peruvian culture ministry. A song of mystery, then. Do we know how many panpipes are in the song? Uh, We don't. There was somebody made a suggestion that this could have been performed by a single person doing both the pipes and the drums, but again, that is supposition. The title is Pan Pipes, implying that there's more than just one. But a Peruvian pan, like a single set that you would play, contains many pipes. Oh, I thought it's still just one pan pipe. Oh, learn something new every day. There you go. Um, This was one of the selections suggested by Alan Lomax. And a little bit of reading. Uh, Maybe I said this before, but in case I didn't, turns out Alan Lomax was responsible for suggesting 15 of the 27 pieces on the Golden Record. So he, he's he, batting more than 500. He deserves a probably larger credit than the people we normally talk about. Oh, should we be complaining about him? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> uh, I think as a rule, our negativity is, tends to be based just around the photos, not necessarily the musical selections. It's true. We, we, There's I been like a pretty good selection so far. Yeah. Pieces around the world. I like this one a lot. I like it as well. The pan pipes that they're playing are, like we were just saying, other hollow wood sticks cut to different lengths open at the top and bottom, and they're blown across. And you quite often would have two rows of pipes strapped together. Yeah, good physics instrument. A good (laughs) physics instrument. And standard tends to be about 13 pipes. That's interesting. I wonder why an odd number, but I'll stop wondering that soon. Well, they, they made a point of mentioning that the construction of the pipes is very similar to instruments found in the South Pacific and in China and India. And there are some people who take this as evidence of people navigating the Pacific in prehistoric times. This is an excellent thought. Often we date the beginning of instrument making to what definitely predates the earliest migrations uh, to North America, or what we would have said were the earliest migrations to North America. So the earliest instruments and art that we know about as a rule, as far as I know, again, I'm not in that uh, line of research, but the best I know is about 10,000 years old. And uh, I seem to recall that the migration to North America is either dated to 13,000 years ago or much earlier. 
like there's a recent story and I apologize we're recording this in advance and so it won't be that recent for you folks but in the last year there was a hypothesis that people had populated North America much longer before that 13,000 years ago date. Is the 13,000 years ago the date of people crossing the Bering Strait? That is a possible way that they came. They could have come down the coast in boats. It's it's more just that uh, you find artifacts that are about 13,000 years old, human-made artifacts that are about 13,000 years old, rather than understanding exactly the path of migration. Certainly much more recent than that. There are uh, drawings or paintings of pipe and drum musicians on Peruvian pottery uh, that date back uh, even before the Incans. So that's uh, before the 13th century. Yeah. Uh, so again, much more recent than what you're talking about. But the tradition of this pipe and drum music is certainly many centuries. Yeah. And there, it, you can understand why, given that it's such a nice physics instrument, like you take a tube and you blow across it. And there was a note, someone saying that, you know, Peru is a very high altitude country. The people up in the Andes tend to have a large lung capacity, thus <laughs> giving popularity to wind instruments. You know, they can they can play a long note. They can really Kenny G this. I'm, I'm, well, I'm envious. I, th- I think that would be a very neat way to increase your uh, musical ability. Just climb a mountain. Yeah, no. Just, no, if I climb a mountain, it <laughs> decreases my musical ability, FYI. And you get perhaps some unrhythmic breathing. <laughs> um, speaking of which, um, they make another note that the drum tempo in the song is irregular in what that would be thought of. That stressed me out, as most drum tempos we've come across <laughs> have done the same thing. Yeah, but apparently this was this was a characteristic of this music from this area and it was an expectation that the drum would play against the rhythm of the of the flute playing yeah. of the panpipe playing. Interesting. I find it makes it more danceable, but that's just me. Uh, really? To have the the drum and the flute doing a little uh, back and forth uh, playing with each other, yeah, it makes the whole thing a little bit more. So someone like me who has no rhythm it would probably help me dance to it because I could just pretend <laughs> that I was... That if there's no identifiable rhythm, right, I can right, do what I want. You could be responding to whatever. Nobody could say, you're not following the rhythm of the music. <laughs> but I'm surprised that... Well, I'm not proposing waltzing to it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think it, it makes you want to... Well, it makes me want to jump in and shake my feet. <laughs> Shaking your feet is a good way to dance. <laughs> Like the hokey, po- hokey pokey. Like the hokey pokey. And, but, but Hannah, you find it fills you with dread. I think the beginning, the, the drum tempo at the beginning, they change kind of at mm-hmm. like 15 seconds in maybe. My initial reaction is, oh, this is stressful. But then it kind of settles into a more solid rhythm, I find. And that part's that part I'm okay with. That part's more exuberant and pleasant. But the, uh, the one at the beginning is pretty stressful to me. I like this as a choice. I, again... I feel as though this, this is musical sound that we haven't really heard before. Yeah, it's one of two pieces from Peru on, on the record. Yeah. Uh, and the next piece, which we'll get to in probably five or six episodes, uh, is only sung. There's no instrumentation on it. I'm curious that they didn't put them together the way they did the two pieces from Australia. Right. Because, again, they both run less than a minute. So it w- mm-hmm. I would have thought it would be easy to put them together. A thing about Peruvian music, uh, there's a musicologist named Robert Stevenson who cl- made the claim that, musically speaking, the Andean peoples outstripped all other New World enclaves. So, yeah, no, I, I need to 
I need to probe that a little bit further. Before 1492, is he talking about, or is he saying because? I think if I think what he's saying is music from the and the Peruvian Andes is more musically interesting than music from other areas. I know some Brazilians who would have a thing or two to say about that. Maybe he just couldn't dance, so this was his favorite kind of music. Ah, a brother non-dancer. <laughs> I mean, it certainly is his opinion, and I would have a hard time believing even at a ethnomusicology conference he could say it and not... Uh, find opposing opinions. Find yeah. an argument to be had. I'm just stating it for the record <laughs> that uh, Robert Stevenson, not the man who wrote Treasure Island, but was a fan of this kind of music and thought very highly of it. I also think highly of it, so I'm, I won't punch him too hard when I meet him. I think that would be appreciated <laughs> by both Mr. Stevenson, possibly Dr. Stevenson, and local police. <laughs> Alien UFO feelings, if you're trapped on a UFO and held in laser fields and this music started playing. I feel like this is a song you would hear after, I feel like this is a song you would hear after a mutiny just took board, took place on board a spaceship. Oh, so it's sung by the mutiny. By the celebratory Yeah, it's people. very celebratory yes, music, don't you absolutely. feel? It's uplifting. So, uh, or it could be heard before someone's about to be burned alive. <laughs> Okay, so, yeah, in previous segments where Hannah discusses how she feels about music as if she would hear it on a UFO, you stated that if you had heard it coming down the hallway. Right. Coming down the hallway, this would be terrifying because of the drums and the drum beats. The the arrhythmic um, nature of the music. Yeah, that would definitely feel like they're coming to burn you. Right. Um, But if it were in, like, a big party room with a celebratory bonfire with no people burning, I think I think you could dance to it. So you're so you're feeling an enthusiasm, but you're not quite sure if it's a positive or negative enthusiasm for it, your future. Yeah, yeah, depending on the context. But through, in a corridor, definitely terrifying. This week's selections from the Pictures of Earth, and we're going to look at a series of pictures from pictures 39 to 45 relating to Earth geology and geography. Picture 39 is titled Diagram of Continental Drift, and it's another diagram slash silhouette by John Lomberg, and it's made as a way of telling the outer space people, the OSPs, about our planet and its construction. So we have three images of the Earth's surface here, and it's kind of um, an ellipsoid of the planet's surface. So it's like if you took the globe and stretched it out, uh, there's three ellipsoids. That's the word, right? Ellipsoid? Three ovals arranged Oval, vertically. that's the one. Okay. Three ovals uh, from top to bottom, and each of them has a time marker below them, giving a number of years. Um, so the first one is... 1.5 billion years, but it's written out by 1.5 and then eight, eight, zeros. eight zeros. And then the next one's 4.5 billion, and the next one after that is 4.51 billion years. My first reaction of this is we have, I mean, having a three, six, nine, ten digit number written out with eight zeros is kind of gross to look at, and we've already given them scientific notation, so assuming that they understood that, why don't we just cut down on 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 this and send scientific notation? 
Absolutely. They should have did that in scientific notation. We'll say the, the first, the top oval, shows the continents as they were some three billion years ago when it was more of a Pangaea and the continents were all together. The second oval was meant to show the continental positions uh, in the present day. And then the third oval is showing what we think the continents, where we think the continents will be in 10 million years. So there's a couple things I want to say about this. One is, is it obvious that these are continents? Is it obvious that what's land and what is sea in, this, in these photos? So the sea is just white and the continents are all shaded in black. It's a diagram. It's not a, mm-hmm. it's not a picture of the Earth. There's also, in the present-day oval, a gigantic hand. Okay. Okay. It's, it's just outside the oval, so it looks like there's this giant hand floating in space beside the Earth that's the size of Australia. Just a human hand chilling there. Yeah. Um, and I could not figure out what in the heck this giant hand the size of Australia was meant to represent... Um, Roby, can you guess what the giant hand was meant to represent? I had a guess that it was meant to represent that this was the age of man, the Anthropocene, which hadn't been named yet. But anyway, it's it's the time on at which the people who sent this disc were. That, that is that is correct. Quote: This is the era when the hand that launched the spacecraft oh, existed. On. Unquote. Yeah, I think there are a lot of better ways to express that idea. For instance, a silhouette of Voyager. For example, a sil- exactly, or a person. If you want to show that this is roughly the time that there were people, don't sever their hand. Like, I, there's no good reason for that hand. Also, there's no scales. The only scales in this picture are the time scales here. There's no size of the Earth. There's no well, they indication. Had, they did have that from previous. We, right, but there's nothing here saying that this is the Earth. That is so correct. So we have not seen silhouetted continents of the earth before that's right and this is just an oval of that so, so there's the no way to know here that that's what we're looking at so given no scales on the earth and no scales on the hand it just looks how are you supposed to discern that this is the planet and it's a projection which is kind of hard to explain yeah that as well yeah so thumbs down to this one this is our, our, oh wait, wait i do oh, have sorry. one i do have one thumbs up Okay. Which is that probably, like, there's a very good chance that it will take 10 million years for whoever it is, the, your OSPs, to get the information and come here, yeah. if that is indeed the scheme. So it's not a bad thought to send them a map of what we think the Earth will look like in 10 million years, because that's what they're going to come and find. What chance do you think we got it right? Uh, it's not... Well, I'm, these guys... Sorry. <laughs> that's, that's unfair. Uh, 1970s right versus 2017 right? Uh, it's, it's probably broadly correct, as long as you accept that the aliens will recognize that projection as... As a projection. The projection that I it is. I think they could have even put in the top corner just a photo of the Earth from space, just so you have some context so as to what context. you're looking at. I agree. They could have put that previous... Instead of a giant hand. They could have had that previous photo of Earth as a yeah. set. They had room. They had room. Okay. Oh, one last thing to say about this. This diagram was actually cribbed from a plaque that Carl Sagan put on another satellite... Uh, the Laser Geometric Environmental Observation Survey, LAGIOS. That was put up in 1976. There were two scientific research satellites designed to provide an orbiting uh, laser ranger for geological research. A laser ranger sounds like a pretty great superhero. 
Yes, agreed. This was a diagram they thought so great that it was worth sending into space twice. Three times, I guess, counting the two Voyagers. This is on a satellite that's orbiting Earth? Correct. Why would you need to put a diagram of Earth orbiting Earth? If if we killed ourselves as a species, there would be some record. All that's left is this crappy continental drift diagram. (laughs) How comforting. (laughs) We don't know how they killed themselves, but they did know about continental drift. (laughs) We see it as a warning to us about the dangers of continental drift, because otherwise, why would they have bothered putting it out in space? I I do want to say... What did Carl Sagan do at NASA? Did he just slap things on <laughs> satellites? Like, what was his role it's, there? I had the same question. Like, he, what was he doing that he would just pop in and say, I'll do the plaque. Yeah. I'll do the record. Maybe he was some sort of hypnotist and just was able to get people to let him do what he wanted. It was the hair. <laughs> and the turtleneck. Just... There's a dude with hair in the turtleneck, and he wants to add five <laughs> grams or 20 grams to our satellite weight. Yes, yes, do it now. <laughs> what color is the turtleneck? Is it black? <laughs> then do it immediately. <laughs> Sorry. Moving on to picture 40. <laughs> picture 40 is another diagram by John Lomberg. It's titled Structure of Earth. It was developed with the help of Dr. Steven Soder of Cornell University. Hannah, you want to talk yeah, about what we're seeing okay. here? So we previously established in some picture that a number surrounded by a circle represents an atomic number. So those are... We've assigned those to elements. Although, have we actually assigned them to elements, or did we just use them assuming they know atomic numbers? I don't think they were. we ever gave the names that we give to the atoms, but it was. I think they clearly showed in previous diagrams that those numbers were meant to represent element numbers. Okay. So... We have... Um, as, as clear as they can make anything. And they, I, right. I seem to recall that they did stick a couple of letters on, but it doesn't matter because what really matters is the number. Who That's cares? Right. What, I mean... That's right. So we have um, a bunch of atomic numbers beside two columns of them beside a fraction. And then on the right-hand side, we have a couple concentric circles with more of those atomic numbers beside fractions. And these are meant to represent the composition of the Earth as well as space. I guess the ones on the left are outside of the circles, so I think those are supposed to be... Well, I I think the the two columns are meant to represent the elemental composition of the Earth as a whole. Oh. And then once you go to the concentric circles, you will see the composition of the crust on the outer circle and then the composition of the core in the middle. So you can see in the middle... There's more iron. It's 86% iron, but in the two columns to the left, it's only 35% of the Earth as a whole. Yeah, but it can't be space. 35% of space is not iron. And, and under the circle, they have the mass and the diameter of the Earth in numbers taken from the previous uh, picture of the Earth that was shown from space. And someday we'll look up the previous picture and see if it has the same so uh, that, precision and number. It is actually that, the same that number. That number is the same as the number on the photo. It's but not the none. same as the number in the table they gave in pictures three and four. But it does... At least it, it matches one of them? It's, and, it's, and I would say it's better to match the one in the photo because the photo was more obviously Earth than yeah. the table. Um, so they're giving this information. The, why give this information? Beyond threat to humanity... <laughs> discussions. Um, why, why, why give this information? It could just be another one of those showing off things like, ooh, we know what our planet's made of. We could be completely lying about this and they would have no idea. 
That's true. This is only going to impress them if they come to Earth, take samples. core samples, and say, yep, yep, they got it. They you can't it. impress these guys. <laughs> they, they can figure out their core structure. It is telling them about what our environment is, how we, what life is supported by, which is the kind of thing that we're very curious about other planets is the planetary composition because we don't know what will support life and what won't support life as such. I have, a, I have a response to that. Good. Which is at no point do they give the percentage of carbon. And I think oh, for uh, heaven's our sakes. life... I mean, well, it, it didn't make the top, you know, 15 or 14 that they're showing here. But uh, I don't think it gives any information about life because life is essentially carbon-based. There's nothing here here that would lead you lead you to build up our organic chemistry. No. Okay. I'm done. I was just going to say that they have within the concentric circles there are two dashed circles, um, and I guess this is distinguishing the crust from the mantle and the outer core from the inner core. But they don't give the composition of those, so I wonder why they're even acknowledging them at all. Also, I I don't think these are to scale, like these circles, and there's no distance indication there. That's true. I think the dotted line is meant to indicate, um, because the the two dotted lines are broken by the concentric list of elements for that part of the Earth, Mm -hmm. and so maybe they're meant to say, this is the composition along those dotted lines. I would believe that if in the oh. inner circle uh, there's a composition that's not in- included in the, the dotted line yeah. circle. Yeah, I mean, Again, the, with the design There's questions. only so far I'm going to defend it. If it's so hard for a human who knows all these things to look <laughs> at this picture and figure out, or any of these pictures, to look at them and figure out what they're trying to convey when we already understand their the writing, the language, the numerics, everything about this, but we can't get what they're trying to tell us. How hard is it going to be for some for an alien, for an alien who hasn't alien. yeah read the whole book that they wrote about what it means? I, I mean, I, I agree. And again, I would say this this slide just wasn't necessary. Yeah. I don't think it tells the aliens, the OSPs, anything useful. And I think it doesn't even convey the information they thought it was going to convey. And it should have just been left out. So does this one have a threat to humanity scale? Zero. What are they going to do with it? Well, if they can somehow transform our planet. Oh, no, I guess it's not the atmosphere. And if, if they can what if, they, if, if they can transmute iron into what plutonium. What if they feed on iron? What if they come and just suck our core out and Yeah, what if it? they're anything like humans and say, oh my god, there's nickel there? I'm on my way. <laughs> what if the power Precious core... silicon. What if the power core from Voyager gives them Superman powers? Like, Well, that would be awesome. Oh, jeez. I, when you said that, I imagined the Voyager starship from Star Trek, and I was so confused as no, to what see, you're talking about. Voyager was a pro. Right. That's what this podcast's about. <laughs> you got to throw away those 10 pages of notes about Captain Janeway. Damn it. That's my best material. <laughs> Moving on to picture 41, we're now going to start a series of about five pictures just showing general parts of the Earth. Picture 41 is a photo of Heron Island by J.M. Pasichoff from Williams College, and it shows an island off the Great Barrier Reef. Now, Hannah, I know you have an interesting point to make about this photo. Yeah, um, it's something that always bothers me with pictures everywhere all the time is when they're taken around the ocean and the horizons are not horizontal. If you have a crooked horizon, um, especially on the ocean, it looks very poor, in my opinion, and this horizon is quite crooked, it, it, which it bothers is, me a lot. It is at at least a five-degree Dutch angle, absolutely. Yeah, so that's just me being picky about an aesthetic thing. 
They claim in Murmurs of Earth that there are coral formations visible, and I will take their word for it. Uh, will you? I will. Was the actual one sent in color? No. Only one and of I'm the, not going to take their word for it. Only one of the photos we're going to talk about today was sent in color. And, uh, but it was also meant to show uh, water dominating the Earth's surface. And another thing you'll see as we go along here is the pictures become drier and drier. There's, there's, <laughs> there is quite a lot of water in this photo. And as we move along to different parts of the Earth, we'll, we will see less and less water. That makes sense. I think that in a black and white photograph, it's not necessarily clear that it is water. Unless the horizon is dead flat, as my colleague oh, has so intelligently point. pointed out. Very interesting point. There's no obvious waves or water break on the surface. Yeah, it's just darker gray. Anyway. Anyway, we're going <laughs> to... Glad they sent it. Now we're going to move on to photo 42, which is titled Seashore, a photo by Dick Smith, and it's taken off Cape Nettick in Maine. Shows a lighthouse and a house on a rocky outcrop uh, with waves crashing on the shore. More obviously water. I think this is actually quite a nice picture to include. I have nothing against this photo. Whoa! Yeah. It's it's very in keeping with, with our native Nova Scotia. Yeah, this maybe I'm easily, biased. This could <laughs> easily be a picture of Nova Scotia. They were quite proud of the fact that it included waves, clouds, solid rock, and evidence of wind. Yeah, I like the the splashing wave in the foreground crashing up against the rock. I think that was a nice touch. So we like that one? I do. Yeah, sure. Moving on to picture 43, titled Snake River and Grand Tetons, photo by uh, photography superstar Ansel Adams from 1942, shows mountains, rivers, and forest, taken in the Grand Teton National Park, Wyoming. I think this is also a nice picture. I I don't have anything bad to say about this one either. It's got... Yeah, you've got it all. You got mountains, river, and forest. Yeah, far be it for me to criticize the Great Ansel Adams. Clouds in there. Shall we talk about the origin of the name Grand Teton? Oh, if you like, I I admitted that I was a silly ten-year-old in my sense of humor last time. You can do it this time. What's what's the Tetons, Michael? It's controversial. There are two possible explanations. No, there's only one. Really, go for it. Um. The most common explanation is that Grand Teton means large teat from the French. Oh. A interesting name given to mountains. Uh, however, I, th- I think that is the prevailing theory, but there are some people who disagree and claim that there was a Sioux tribe of Wyoming called the Teton Sioux, and that the name could have come from there. Hmm. Do, th- they, do they claim that there was a Sioux tribe, or is there actually a Sioux tribe... Well, there is who, uh, who for uh, whom there is evidence that they were called the Teton Sioux before their mountains were. I, I I'm going to assume that this is the crux of the disagreement. Uh, I again, I think I more believe the uh, fact that it was named after French teats. Yeah, I I think uh, mountains and mountain ridges get all sorts of. Uh, names from people who are uh, the first ones there, and they're of, often, let's say, plain-spoken folk. <laughs> Yeah, and in fact, to give some credence to the um, large teat explanation, they even say that that name was given by a expedition of the Northwest Company led by Donald McKenna, and so they, which was filled with French Canadians. Uh, moving on again, picture forty-four is titled "Sand Dunes," taken by George F. Mobley of the National Geographic Society. 
and it shows a man on a horse with his trusty dog riding across some sand dunes. Also in America, there's been a sort of theme, growing theme here about where the earth... They uh, don't actually say (laughs) where the photo is from. I'm going to assume not, but I don't know. One thing they were happy to show was this shows wind-generated geological processes. Mm. There is quite a nice sort of ripple in the sand dunes. Less, of course, you read it as water because it's a black and white picture and you think that horses <laughs> can walk on water. Okay, but that's, so that's, that's not the thing they were most worried about in terms of misinterpretation. Can you guess possibly what they were worried about? Oh, yeah, yeah, that there's, that there's an animal on Earth that is a human top sprouting out of the back of a horse. A centaur, exactly. Well, it's not a centaur because it has a horse head as well. Oh, good point. <laughs> it's like a centaur on a hobby horse. <laughs> <laughs> if we have anybody listening who's interested in fan art, I don't know if we can ask this. But please, a centaur on a hobby horse would just make me the happiest person in the world. <laughs> um, well, and they were—they felt slightly better about it when they realized that there was going to be other photos uh, showing horses and people separately. Yes. Is this the only photo with a dog in it? Uh, we'll find out. You, I'm okay. going to leave it to you to keep track. I'll be on the dog watch. All right. We're up to one dog. Yes. And finally, photo 45. And this is the photo they sent in color. This is a photo of Monument Valley taken by Ray Manley of Shostal Associates. And it shows a rugged geology. Again, with the wind-formed or erosion-formed geology. Erosion-formed. And um, the, the famous peaks of Monument Valley were old volcanic eruptions. So it's showing um, evidence of volcanic activity. Kind of. It could be just, you know, evidence that giants put uh, rocks in places, right? Like, it's or very we, difficult to... Those giant hands we saw. Yeah. That are orbiting the Earth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and it shows people and sheep. Which is charming. Which is charming. <laughs> Monument Valley, famous as the filming location of many classic movies, uh, westerns. Keith Phipps, a film critic, quoted as saying, its five square miles have defined what decades of moviegoers think of when they imagine the American West. But it is the American West. I, I, we've had, we're looking at five pictures of geological formations of the Earth, and three of them are America. And uh, yes. At least three, possibly four. But I'm, I'm, not, I'm not complaining about those photos. Like, I don't think there's anything specifically um, North American about those photos. Well, but if you're really looking for, like, Monument Valley, well, it defines the American cinematography and the American Western. Uh, There are plenty of places on Earth that show that kind of landscape to better effect. You know, there's those, oh, places where you have striated rock where the wind and water have have exposed the striations in those very beautiful undulating ways. Fun fact. <laughs> fun fact. Hannah's got fun a fun fact. fact. Uh, this Monument Valley was used in 2001, A Space Odyssey, as the surface of an alien planet. So they may see this and think it's home or something. I don't know. I believe when it was used in 2001, it was uh, seriously color changed and fuzzed out. So, so maybe they won't recognize it after all. I thought it was used in 2001 for the beginning when they were showing prehistoric Earth. Maybe both. Uh, so, do we have an opinion on the threat to humanity level for these, severally or collectively? These, these, these five photos, I would say, pretty low. Uh, uh, two, maybe. There, we're showing a diverse geology. 
so that could confuse them. They can't make a single plan based around sand, water, or trees, <laughs> or sheep. So I don't, I don't, I don't think, I don't think there was too much treason going on here. <laughs> on to talking about track 14. Track 14 is titled Melancholy Blues from the United States of America, recorded by Louis Armstrong in his Hot 7. It runs three minutes and five seconds and was recorded on May 11th, 1927. And it is a great piece of classic jazz. With an interesting name, the Melancholy Blues. It's kind of a tautology. Yeah. Songs need names. Songs need names. What's a tautology? Uh, repetition. Oh, it's like where you say the same thing twice and two, the, right? The sad, melancholy blues. Yes. Uh, I think this is a great piece, and I'm so glad it's on there. It might be my favorite one so far, in fact. So this was Armstrong recording with his with a band called the Hot Seven. They recorded about 12 songs, or sides, that they called it, during a recording session in May 1927. He recorded much more with a group called the Hot Five. I have some information on the Hot Seven. They are on clarinet. Johnny Dots, who uh, also recorded with Jelly Roll Morton and was a huge influence on Benny Goodman. There was on piano Lil Armstrong, who was a pianist, composer, arranger, singer, and band leader, and Lewis's second wife. They met while he was part of her band. And I'm going to list a couple of titles of songs she composed, because I think they have great titles. Don't Jive Me. Uh, Two Deuces, which as a fan of Homestar Runner, I found very funny. And my absolute now all-time favorite song title of all time, Struttin' With Some Barbecue. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to do that next week. (laughs) On banjo and guitar was Johnny St. Sir, who also played with Jelly Roll Morton. And from 61 to 66, which unfortunately was the year of his death, he was the band leader of a band called the Young Men of New Orleans, who performed at Disneyland. On drums was Baby Dots, who was the brother of clarinetist Johnny Dots, who we just discussed. Uh, And Baby and Johnny had a bit of an acrimonious relationship. On tuba, Peter Briggs, who in his late 40s uh, left music and became a farmer. And on trombone, John Thomas, who I was unable to find anything about. They're a good group. This, I think, is not that uncommon for a group to sort of coalesce and then decoalesce and and spread out to other people. I mean, the fact that they recorded together doesn't necessarily mean that they were going to be a well-defined band for the next 10 years, if you see what I mean. And, of course, they could only record one song per side of a record, so I like the fact that you defined it as how many sides they recorded. Yeah. (laughs) That seems to have been the little bit of research I was doing that seemed to have been a common terminology for old jazz recordings. A couple of interesting... So this was... uh, Louis Armstrong was from New Orleans, and this was a... uh, You know, this is 1927, so this was really bringing uh, New Orleans jazz music to uh, popular recording. There was notes that this that New Orleans jazz was a major movement for black musicians asserting their own style of music in the aftermath of slavery and that uh, they were using a lot of musical techniques clearly inherited from African sources. For more information, see Ken Burns Jazz. Actually, see (laughs) an enormous quantity of of writing about the way that jazz music works. This is a... New Orleans jazz is a particular form of jazz in which the instruments tend to trade the melodic line with each other. Um, Like, they tend... There tends to be a verse where 
the cornet is in the lead and then there's a verse where the banjo is in the lead and so forth yeah there's lots of wonderful manifestations of it i think that it would be reasonable to state that louis armstrong was one of the most important musicians out of america armstrong was nicknamed satchmo which was short for satchel mouth and the leading explanation I could find for that nickname was, as a, as a young man and as a child, he you know he grew up in a very extreme poverty, and he would perform on streets uh, in the hopes of having people uh, put coins down. And because it was a sort of cutthroat area, he, he had to have some place to put the coins, and he would put the coins in his mouth, hmm. uh, thus treating his mouth as a satchel. While he played. And have coins in his mouth? Uh, I believe so, yes. Gee it's whiz. pretty amazing, yeah. Well, it's, it's worth a nickname. Yeah. Yeah. Other fun facts, uh, jazz bands in New Orleans would roll around on the weekend on, fl- on flatbed wagons. They would just drive around town playing. And Armstrong proposed that this was the origin of the phrase on the wagon to mean <laughs> you weren't drinking. Because <laughs> jazz musicians would have to either decide if they were going to play on the wagon, in which case they were expected to be sober, or if they would spend the weekend uh, drinking. (laughs) This is not backed up by any other uh, (laughs) etymology of the phrase. Well, uh, for those of us who've read his his letters, often Louis Armstrong wrote some extremely funny letters with just incomparable use of language and also uh, unexpectedly hilarious references to laxatives. he it's well worth looking them up anyway i i like the idea that he also is contributing to the folk etymology even if it's not uh, scholarly etymological research it's <laughs> a fun idea potential fun fact about this recording the drummer baby dots as we mentioned uh was only playing the cymbals because recording technology at the time or at least the recording technology they were using had a really hard time uh getting capturing drums There is a fact about recording on vinyl, which is that either um, you use the plastic, the the depth of the vinyl, to give you a range of frequencies, or you use it to give you a length of time. So there is a sort of trade-off between the lowest and highest note on the disc and the length of time that you can record and uh, that trade-off got sort of better and better imagined as time went on for sure in 1927 it was hard Mm -hmm. and this would have been on shellac not vinyl so hannah you're on the ufo oh yeah this is a a plus this is on par with the mexican uh el cascabel el cascabel yeah i think these two are are the best ones to hear walking down an alien corridor if you hear this no 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 it's the it's the melancholy blues. Right, but it's not a sad song. This it's, it's melancholy blues. Have you heard this song? I have. This is a great song. Okay. It makes me want to dance. You are shedding your blues. <laughs> you're letting your blues go. You're you're having this music carry the blues away. My statements to the contrary. I, I agree. This doesn't really sound like a sad I'm, song. No, not at all. I don't think. So I think this would be great to hear echoing through an alien I'm just, corridor. I'm just wondering what you have against Johnny Be Good. Oh, that was also on the top. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> no, those, yeah, these yeah, yeah. three. No, it was the Senegalese piece that she really, that was, yeah, that was really yeah. freaking her out. <laughs> yeah. The work, the work song, work yeah. harder. Yeah. <laughs> now I know what to play the next time I'm <laughs> giving you an exam, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
Thanks for listening to Earth's Mixtape. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Please rate and review us on iTunes, and maybe we will read your name on a future episode. Reviews will help people find out about the podcast, and maybe tell your friends about us. Did we make a mistake or an omission? Heck yeah, we did. Let us know all about it on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Earth's Mixtape. Or email us at earthsmixtape at gmail.com. Earth's Mixtape is produced at St. Mary's University in beautiful Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada.